Stops fill your pocket, adventures fill your soul. Jamie Lynn Beatty. This is Sincerely Yours, and I'm your host, Cece Denno. Hello, pen pals. Back to another episode of Sincerely Yours. So we have quotables at the beginning of the episode for this one. Jobs fill your pocket, adventures fill your soul. Jamie Lynn Beattie. And that is a quotable from me because I don't have any more quotables. So please, please, please send them in. The email is sincerelyyours at writeme.com. If you want to go ahead and find me on Facebook, my first name, Cece, last name, Denno. You can find me on Instagram at Cece Knows It All. But please, please reach out. And since I don't have any more quotables in the bank, the first person to get me a quotable, and I'll let you know, I will send you a gift in the mail. So send in the quotables. They can be your favorite quote. They can be a catchphrase. It can be a song lyric, anything that resonates, just go ahead and send them in and you'll get a little shout out on the show and we'll read your quote about the beginning of the next episode. So let's see, there seems to be a lot of changes going on. So as I've shared before, I did make the move in to Somerville and that has been very different from my life in Cambridge and so there are some other changes and there will definitely be some follow-up episodes uh, for me to go into what's been going on with my life and for me to share. So what I'm going to do for this episode is I'm going to share a story out of a book that I'm currently reading and it's called The Opposite of Loneliness, Essays and Stories by Marina Keegan, and the book was first introduced to me by one of my old roommates, Francesca, who went to Yale with Marina, and so she recommended it, and one of the stories in there definitely resonated with all the change that's been going on in my life, and is to a pinpoint a reflection of what is going on. So I wanted to go ahead and just share this with you guys and hopefully that you can pick up also a copy of The Opposite of Loneliness. So Marina Keegan was an award-winning author, journalist, playwright, poet, actress, and activist. Her nonfiction has been published in the New York Times, Her fiction has been published on newyorker.com and read on NPR's Selected Shorts. Her musical, Independence, was a New York Times critic's pick. Marina's final essay for the Yale Daily News, The Opposite of Loneliness, became an instant global sensation viewed by more than 1.4 million people from 98 countries. And she was born 1989 and passed away in 2012. Let's begin. Stability in motion. 
My 1990 Camry's DNA was designed inside the metallic walls of the Toyota Multi-International Corporation's headquarters in Tokyo, Japan, transported via blueprint to the North American Manufacturing Nerve Center in Hebron, Kentucky, grown organ by organ in four major assembly plants in Alabama, New Jersey, Texas, and New York, tracked to 149th Arsenal Street in Watertown, Massachusetts, and steered home by my grandmother on September 4, 1990. It featured a 200 HP 3.9 L V6 engine, a four-speed automatic, and adaptive variable suspension system she deemed the car too high tech in 1990 this meant a cassette player a cup holder and a manually operated moonroof during its youth the car traveled little in 15 years my grandmother accumulated a meager 25,000 miles mostly to and from the market my family's house and the greek jewelry store downtown the black exterior remained glossy and spotless the beige interior crisp and pristine tissues were disposed of seats vacuumed and food prohibited my grandmother's old-fashioned cleanliness was an enduring virtue one i inevitably did not inherit i acquired the old camry through an awkward transaction 10 days before my 16th birthday my grandfather died he was 86 and it had been long expected, yet I still felt a guilty unease when I heard the now surplus car would soon belong to me. My grandmother, it was a symbolic goodbye. She needed to see only one car in her garage, needed to comprehend her loss more tangibly. Grandpa's car was the nicer of the two, so that one she would keep. Three weeks after the funeral, my grandmother and I went to the bank. I signed a check for exactly $1, and the car was legally mine. That was that. When I drove her home that evening, I manually opened the moonroof and put on a tape of Frank Sinatra. My grandma smiled for the first time in weeks. Throughout the next three years, the car evolved. When I first parked the Toyota in my driveway, it was spotless, full of gas, and equipped with my grandmother's version of survival necessities. The glove compartment had a magnifying glass, three pens, and the registration in a little Ziploc bag. The trunk had two matching black umbrellas, a first aid kit, and a miniature sewing box for emergency repairs. Like my grandmother's wrist, everything smelled of opium perfume. For a while, I maintained this immaculate condition, yet one Wrigley's wrapper led to two, and soon enough, my car underwent a radical transformation, the vehicular equivalent of a midlife crisis. Born and raised in a proper formality, the car saw me as that friend from school, the bad example, who washes away naivete and corrupts the clean and innocent. We were the same age, after all, both 18. The Toyota was born again, crammed with clutter, and exposed to diabolical levels it has never fathomed. I filled it with giggling friends and emotional phone calls, borrowed skirts, and bottled drinks. 
the messiness crept up on me. Parts of my life began falling off, forming an elastic debris that dribbled gradually into every corner. Empty sushi containers, Diet Coke cans, half-filled packets of gum, sweaters, sweatshirts, socks, my running shoes. My clutter was non-discriminatory. I had every variety of newspaper, scratched-up English paper, biology review sheet, and Spanish flashcards discarded on the seats after I'd sufficiently studied on my way to school. The left door pocket was filled with tiny tinfoil balls crumped after consuming my morning English muffin. By Friday, I had the entire house's supply of portable coffee mugs. By Sunday, someone would complain about their absence and I would rush out, grab them all, and superstitiously place them in the dishwasher. My car was not gross. It was occupied, cluttered, cramped. It became an extension of my bedroom and thus an extension of my life. I had two bumper stickers on the back, Republicans for Voldemort, and the symbol for the Equal Rights Campaign. On the back side window were Obama 08 signs that my parents made me take down because they dangerously blocked my sight line. The trunk housed my guitar, but was also the library, filled with textbooks and novels, the giant tattered copy of the complete works of William Shakespeare and all 100 chapters of Harry Potter on tape. A few stray cassettes littered the corners, their little brown insides ripped out, tangled, and mutilated. They were the casualties of the trunk trenches, sprawled out forgotten next to the headband I never gave back to Megan. On average, I spent two hours a day driving. It was nearly an hour each way to school, and the old-fashioned Toyota, regarded with light-hearted amusement by my classmates, came to be a place of comfort and solitude amid the chaos of my daily routine. My mind was free to wander, my muscles to relax. No one was watching or keeping score. Sometimes I let the deep baritone of NPR's Tom Ashbrook lecture me on oil shortages. Other times I played repetitive mixed tapes with titles like Pancake Breakfast, Tie-Dye and Granola, and Songs for the Highway When It's Snowing. Ravaging my car, I often found more than just physical relics. For two months, I could hardly open the side door without reliving the first time he kissed me. His dimpled smile was barely visible in the dark, but it nevertheless made me stumble backwards when I found my way blushing back into the car. On the back seat, there was the June 3rd issue of the New York Times that I couldn't bear to throw out. When we drove home together from the camping trip, he read it cover to cover while I played Simon and Garfunkel, hoping he'd realize all the songs were about us. We didn't talk much during that ride. We didn't need to. He slid his hand into mine for the first time when we got off the highway. It was only after I made my exit that I realized I should have missed it. Above this newspaper was the fingernail marks I dug into the leather of my steering wheel on the night we decided to just be friends. My car listened to me cry for all 21 and a half miles home. The physical manifestations of my memory soon crowded the car. 
my right back speaker was broken from the time my older brother and I pulled an all-nighter singing shamelessly during our rainy drive home from the wedding. I remember the sheer energy of the storm, the lights, the music moving through us, transcending the car's steel shell and tracing the city. There was the folder left behind from the day I drove my dad to an interview the month after he lost his job. It was coincidental that his car was in the shop, but I knew he felt more pathetic that it was he, not his daughter, in the passenger seat. I kept my eyes on the road, feeling the confused sadness of a child who catches a parent crying. I talked a lot in my car. Thousands of words and songs and swears were absorbed in its fabric, just like the orange juice I spilled on my way to the dentist. It knows what happened when Allie went to Puerto Rico, understands the difference between the way I look at Nick and the way I look at Adam, and remembers the first time I experimented with talking to myself. I've practiced for auditions, college interviews, Spanish oral presentations, and debates. There's something novel about swearing alone in the car. Yet, with the pressures of APs and SATs and other acronyms that haunt high school, the act became more frequent and less refreshing. My car has seen three drive-in movies. During the dark night, its battery died and giggling ferociously. We had to ask the overweight family in the next row to jump it. The smell of popcorn permeated every crevice of the sedan, and, and all rides for the next week were like a trip to the movies. There was a variety of smells in the Camry. At first, it smelled like my grandmother, perfume, mint, and mothballs. I went through a chai tea phase, during which my car smelled incessantly of Indian herbs. Some mornings, it would smell slightly of tobacco, and I would know immediately that my older brother had kidnapped it for the night before. For exactly three days, it reeked of marijuana. Dan had removed the shabbily rolled joint from behind his ear, and our fingers had trembled as the five of us apprehensively inhaled. Nothing happened. Only the seats seemed to absorb the plant and get high. Mostly, however, it smelled like nothing to me, yet when I drove my friends, they always said it had a distinct aroma. I believe this functioned in the same way as not being able to taste your own saliva or smell your own odor. The car and I were pleasantly immune to each other. In the Buckingham Brown and Nicholas High School yearbook, I was voted worst driver, but on most days, I will refute this superlative. My car's love for parking tickets made me an easy target, but I rarely received other violations. My mistakes mostly harmed me, not others, locking my keys in the car or parking on the wrong side of the road. Once, last winter, I needed to refill my windshield wiper fluid and in a rushed frenzy poured an entire bottle of similarly blue antifreeze inside. Antifreeze, as it turns out, burns out engines if used in excess. I spent the next two hours driving circles around my block in a snowstorm, urgently expelling the antifreeze squirts by thick blue squirts. I played no music during this vigil. I couldn't find a playlist called Poisoning Your Car. It may have been awkward looking and muddled, but I was attached to my car. It was a portable home that heated my seat in winter and carried me home at night. I had no diary and rarely took pictures. That old Toyota Camry was an odd documentation of my adolescence. When I was 17, the car was 17. 
My younger brother entered high school last September, and I passed my ownership on to him. In the week before I left for college, my parents made me clean it out for his sake. I spread six trash bags over the driveway, filling them with my car's contents as the August sun heated their black plastic. The task was strange, like deconstructing a scrapbook, unpeeling all the pictures, and whiting out the captions. Just like for my grandmother, it was a symbolic goodbye. Standing outside my newly vacuumed car, I wonder if I tried hard enough, whether I could smell the opium perfume again, or if I scratched long enough, whether I'd find the matching umbrellas and the tiny sewing kit. My brother laughed at my nostalgia, reminding me that I could still drive the car when I came home. He didn't understand that it wasn't just the driving I'd miss, that it was the tinfoil balls, the New York Times and the broken speaker, the fingernail marks, the stray cassettes, and the smell of chai. Alone that night and parked in the driveway, I listened to Frank Sinatra with the moon roof slid back. And there we go. That was Stability in Motion by Marina Keegan. I definitely recommend her book. Um, it's filled of fiction and nonfiction stories. And so when I read this particular one, I was actually on the train and I almost was in tears because it just struck a chord with me. And knowing that things do change and you appreciate the way that things were and you find a home and you build around concrete things that physically do exist but can be gone in an instance and that can move you forward to the next chapter in your life. It's funny to think that when you're younger, you feel that every little thing is such a dramatic impact in everything you do and everything you think and say. But as I look back at my career in my earlier 20s, Every, I feel like every day has played such a significant impact into where I am today. We should really take Marina's suggestion of enjoying the life that you build and uh, appreciating everything that you do have and to soak in the memories because you never know that that life can no longer exist and you could change your life with one decision and create a whole new life for yourself. So yeah, hopefully this episode will tide you all over while I prepare to release all the big changes going on in my life. And so if you like the story, if you didn't like this episode, reach out to me. I love to hear the feedback and send in quotables. And so you can find me at email sincerely yours at writeme.com and go check out the website i've done a ton of work on it and it's super impressive so the website is it's sincerely yours.com and it's with the i-t-s sincerely yours.com so yeah love your feedback uh until next time <music>
I believe this functioned in the same way as not being able to taste your own saliva or smell your own or- order. Odor. 